Hey, welcome to the Crack House Chronicles True Crime Podcast. I am Donnie, and with me is a man that will go on any hiking trip, as long as he can do it from his couch. It's Dale. You got that right. Yeah. We had this discussion this week, didn't we? That's right. Can you see it from the parking lot? Yeah. Or you can Google it on your phone. That's right. That's right. Bring me some pictures back. Yeah, take me a picture while you're there. What's going on, dude? What's happening, my man? Uh, I'm having a great day. Oh, yeah. No yeah, doubt. yeah, not really, but yeah, I'm having a great day. Well, it's great now, isn't it? Well, it's great now. I'm not at work. Oh, man, I'm telling you. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't talk about that. Yeah, it's been a week. It's been a week. <laughs> it has, but I'm ready. Yeah. Big times. Yeah, I know. You're, you're ready. I am. Yep. You got any good shout-outs or anything you want to talk about? Man, we got a couple, man. Uh, we got some uh, Apple Podcast uh, five-star heroes today apple apple podcast people know how to do that don't they they do man oh man we love these folks um or three four two one which is o a r three four two one said uh, they were from charlotte and kind of grew up in myrtle beach and they really love the local stories and thought we'd do a pretty good job and then just enough humor to our dark subject matter are we dark subject matter yeah i don't we're know dark man i think we uh, do a pretty good job tap dancing that line oh yeah you know, sometimes it's, it's a fine line. Sometimes, man, I might, I might get out in the field a little bit sometimes, but you know, that is that's part of it. Yeah. <laughs> and we got one for Czar Trump, which is C Z A R Trump, and he just said simply very good and five stars. That's it. Write something in the box and leave a five star. That's right. And you will get a shout out. You getting it? You getting it? Yep. And one more. We have a Google review, which is something new to me. Uh, Jennifer Corona. Thank you so much for your five-star review. Yeah, I just got a notification from that the other day, and I didn't know what they, people could do that, but yeah. Well, apparently you can. Yep. Google review. Get it on just, it. It just popped up on my phone, and I was like, what is this? Sweet. Yeah. So, Thank you, Jennifer. Appreciate yeah. that. If you do a, click a five-star anywhere and leave a review, you get a shout-out. That's right. Yeah. There's some new designs on the store page. Go over there and get you something, pick you out something cool to wear. Yeah. Everybody needs something cool, man. Yeah. Support the crack house and help keep the lights on. Yeah. You know, it's kind of hard to do it in the dark. Yeah. Well, do the show anyway. <laughs> yeah. Turn the candle on over there. <laughs> Turn the candle on. That's right. Yeah. That's what they used to do back in the old days. Light the lantern. Yeah. Turn the candle on. Turn the candle on. Flip the switch. <laughs> yeah. Pay the light bill. That's right. People pay light bills. Don't they? Do they still call it a light bill? I don't know. I call it a power bill. Power bill? Yeah. You know where we're from. Yeah. Yeah. You but, pay the power bill. Yeah, but they don't say anywhere you're getting from duke power you get it from duke energy yeah i'm paying my energy bill yeah whatever i yeah. still pay the power bill yeah i pay the light bill <laughs> same difference that's right <laughs> all right man we are going to get into a pretty weird case this week it is we've done some uh, missing people lately but we're going to get back on the serial killer train well yeah and today we I do not want to ride that train well we're going to get on this train <laughs> okay I said, I'll be back in the car where the bar is. Yeah. We're riding a serial killer train. I want to get drunk when I go out. Looking at it from your phone, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to do a serial, <laughs> we're going to do a serial killer today. All right. And this is a guy. His name is William Devin Howell. The third. No, oh. he's just William Devin Howell. Sorry, I was on Gilligan's Island yeah. for a second. But he was born on February the 11th, 1970. He's 52 years old today. Well, not today, but he's 52 years old. And he was born in Hampton, Virginia. Virginia. Yep. And just a little bit of backstory on his life, he was the youngest of four boys. Yeah, way young. Yeah. His 
he had two older brothers that were close to 20 years old. Yeah, I mean, they were older. One of them was even in Vietnam at the time. I think um, William Devin Howe was a bonus child, pretty much. Yeah, um, I think he was He was born, his mother was like 40, which is pretty old to have kids in the 70s. Yeah, it's not uncommon today, I don't think. Right, but then he had, one is his uh, next closest was like five years older near so. Yeah. So he had like two that was 20, then him and and the other one was fairly close, but not mm-hmm. really. But now his older brothers described him as a a child that was pretty much left to roam freely. He could pretty much do what he wanted to do and had latitude to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wasn't. Well, you know how it is. First kid, you're scared to death and really strict on everything they do. And after you go a long little while, it's like, yeah, hell, just let him do it. Yeah, he'll learn on his own. He'll figure, <laughs> he'll figure it out. Now, he grew up. In Virginia Beach, like we said, and this was close to Langley Air Force Base. I guess we'll just call him Howell through this whole episode. Instead of calling him William Devin Howell, we'll just call him by his last name, Howell. Okay. But some people went, called him Devin, other people called him William, other people called him Bill. Yeah, he usually went by Devin, I think. I think he had a tattoo on his arm with yeah. Devin on it. Yeah, so I'd say that's what he preferred. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if he had Devin on his arm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we're just going to call him Howell okay. as much as we can. But now, by the time he was around 12 years old, his mother developed cancer, Dale. Yeah. It was breast cancer. And she went through a lot with that. Yeah, you know, back Especially back back in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. chemo was rough back then. I mean, it was rough now, but it was really rough, you know, early. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. Back in them days, you didn't really hear much about cancer a lot. Mm Mm-mm. And he would uh, come home every day from school and help take care of his mom because I think his dad worked quite a bit. Yeah. So he had to help take care of his mother and do for her because she was pretty much the one who ran the household. Yeah, she he was even described as a, the disciplinary one there oh, yeah. in the house. Yeah. And Tan that hide. Yeah, and Hal would even said at one time that he got a lot of spankings as a kid. but He also said he deserved everyone he got. Yeah. <laughs> so... It's not like abusive nothing. It's like, you know, back in the day, you got your your, your tail warmed up. Mm-hmm. But his entire childhood, he, he described it as a pretty normal childhood. Yeah, right. So it's not really like a, your typical, or I guess there is such thing as a typical, but you're, usually stories of serial killers, you got also kind of, some kind of weird childhood or stuff going on in the home or, you know, some kind of abuse, whether it be really beaten or sexual or whatever. There's always some kind of something or a big a major blow to the head or something yeah. that, that causes that you can kind of go back and point to it and go well maybe right here is where we started but in his it was not like that uh he, he wasn't the type that would set fires or abuse animals or anything like that he right. was just a just a regular kid just making his way through life right now he did start drinking around 13 i think yeah trying to cope with all this stuff with his mama yeah but like i said his mom developed cancer when he was age of 12 yeah and they were some days uh she was just bedridden. Oh, I'm sure. And he would come home, and she would beg him to go get the gun. Right. Well, you know, after a while, you know, she had several strokes, and she was paralyzed on her left side. Yeah. So that she basically was bedridden after that. She just kind of, they kind of put her bed where she could see out the window and that kind of thing. And there was days where she begged him to go get your daddy's gun out of the top drawer, and you need to go out and play. Just let mm-hmm. me do what I need to do. But that just killed him. But, you know, he never would do it, but it just eat at him. Yeah, I imagine. Now, when he was 14, he had uh, stole his daddy's car. Yep. 
and he was able to get it out of the driveway without anybody hearing it. And he drove to Newport News, Virginia, and hired his first prostitute. Right at the age of fourteen. Mm-hmm. Now he had he had girlfriends before then, you know, and he said that you know when stuff was going on, he would go see his girlfriends and kind of clean his slate, I guess. <laughs> Could yeah. go over there and do the you know he was having sex back then with his girlfriends and other friends, but and then uh, I guess other girls. Mm-hmm. But then, like you said, this time there was nobody available, so that's when he decided he would try the professional route. Yeah, yeah. And he liked it. He, yeah, he was kind of hooked on that. Yep. And he would uh, do odd jobs around the neighborhood, cutting grass and different things, just to be able to afford that, be able to go and hire his prostitutes. Right. Mm-hmm. And he dropped out of high school when he was 15. Mm-hmm. And he had fathered two children with his high school girlfriend. Right. Yeah, and I said, you know, even though one day he was actually had been taking care of his mom and then... Uh, He'd sat there with her for a couple of days because she was pretty bad off. And then he decided to go see his girlfriend while he was over there with them. And they were having sex. He got the number that, or he got the call that uh, she had passed away. Yeah, while he was with his girlfriend and having yeah, sex. all this while he's 15. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you got that to think about, too. Oh, the, oh, yeah. And I think the his mother going through all that and the death of his mother, I think that was sort of a tilting point for her. That might have been like the blow to the head. It could have been. Yeah. Just um, an emotional blow to the head. Right. Instead of being dropped on your head as a child. I think that really, really bothered him. Yeah. And and then only five years later, his dad passed away. Yeah. So then, and I think even when, before that, he was just kind of living in the garage, I think we read. Mm -hmm. Even on whether they had updated it and made it into a bedroom or whatever he was and that made it really easy for him to take the car and go and even he was still doing this and even uh like replacing the gas and rolling back the mileage and all this stuff so it didn't really didn't get caught taking it yeah and then uh like i said you know just a couple years later his dad passed away so he went from being barely supervised to not supervised at all Mm-hmm. so that's pretty much what he did in his entire life was just doing odd jobs and stuff and supporting his uh little family he had with his girlfriend right. at the time. But by the time he reached the age of 30, you know, he was living in Connecticut and had two children to help support from his days back in Virginia. And he continued to work steady, and his life took uh, on a pretty much a repetitive thing. You know, he was just in relation, in unstable relationships and temporary housing and heavy drinking, using drugs. Uh, Howell didn't know how to stay out of trouble. Right. Well, you know, when you're unsupervised, you know, you, what do you what do you care really at this point? Yeah. Go ahead. Which, you know, it kind of led him to push the envelope. But in the decade leading up to his arrest in 2005 for manslaughter that we, we're going to talk about, he racked up a number of convictions for drugs and along with larceny and burglary in Virginia. Right. And he was even locked up in Georgia and New Jersey as well so he's he's wrecking them up yeah and most of the charges surrounded his drinking and pot smoking habits along with driving on a suspended license yeah he was, that was his main problem i think he didn't ever have a license but since he started drinking it said basically he said it was hardly ever a day since he was 13 that he didn't drink i know so it's not easy to keep a driver's license with that yeah now in early 2002 when he was 31 years old he took a job with Benco Roofing. This was in Torrington, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And he purchased a Ford Econoline 
This was a van yeah. for $400. Nice one. Yeah, we're going to post pictures of this van, <laughs> and we're going to talk a little bit more about this van, too. But right, he, oh, yeah. He purchased this Ford Econoline van for $400 from his former girlfriend's mother. Right. That he lived with off and on. And her name was Dory Holcomb. Yeah. But this Ford van, man, it was in rough shape. Yeah, it run good, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah. And it had enough room in the back to store his belongings and keep his tools that he had when he'd done these little odd jobs as a landscaper and whatever he'd done. Mm-hmm. And to be able to sleep in the back of this van. Right. But he lost his apartment that winter and lived in the van when he wasn't staying with Dory. Right. Now, how had asked his boss at Benco, his name was Eric Benson, would it be okay if he used the company parking lot to park his van and sleep in the van just for a few weeks, I guess trying to find a place to stay or something. And he ended up working at Benco for the next eight months. And during this time, his fantasies of raping women started to increase. Yeah, I guess he's just laying in that van thinking about it. Yeah, but it became a part of his life. Yeah. And this uh, boss, Benson, he recalled how as a good worker and a, had a wonderful personality and even said it'd be okay to park behind the shop. Yeah, no problem. Just, you know, sleep in the van and come to work, get up and come to work. Yeah, just get out of the car and go. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was going, like, to the YMCA and stuff and taking showers, so it wasn't like he was just staying in their state. <laughs> yeah. Most of the time, anyway. Yep. Now, a year later, his temporary home on wheels, Dale, it would turn itself into what he labeled it as the murder mobile. Yeah. And he would use the Benko parking lot not only to sleep, but to rape women before strangling them to death. Mm. So I guess he was picking up some prostitutes. and He was just escalating is all it was. Yeah. All right, Dale, we're going to jump ahead to the year 2003. And this was when it was the violent death of Nilsa Arizmendi. She was 33 years old in July that year. And that's what sent Howell to jail. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Nilsa, she was a mother of four. And she was reported missing by her longtime boyfriend, Ace Sanchez. Yeah. And he had saw her get into Hal's van. Well, you know, Hal had uh, been hanging out with them. Yes. Doing crack together. and Hanging out at the motel. Yeah, they lived in a motel. So they were all doing crack together and hanging out together. Having three ways together. Three ways together and a bunch of this other stuff. And then last time he had saw her, she got in the van with him. And then he hadn't seen her since. He went back, you know, uh, from wherever they were partying and hanging out at the hotel and waiting. And she never showed up. And Ace Sanchez, he was considered a suspect on um, oh, for sure. Nilsa's disappearance. Yeah. I think he took two polygraph tests. He failed the first one. Yeah. Well, it looked deceptive, they said. Yeah, then he took a second one and passed it with flying colors. Right. And it could have been up to, because of nervousness or something. I mean, he, I mean, they were doing illegal stuff. Oh, so. yeah, for sure. But like Dale said, he he did see her get into Howe's van. Right. But now this was on uh, July the 31st, 2003. There was a woman told police that her sister, who was 33 years old, this was one we're talking about, Nilsa Arizmendi, had not been heard from for seven days. And Arizmendi's sister told police that she was a heroin user and a sex worker mm-hmm. who was living in the motel in Westerfield 
along with her boyfriend, Ace, and he told investigators that he and Arizmendi had allowed Hal to stay overnight in their room and that he saw Arizmendi at 2.30 a.m. on July the 25th, 2003, when she got into Hal's van. And Arizmendi's body was found on April the 28th, 2015. This was many, many years later. Right. That we're going to talk about. Right. All right, Dale. Hal became a suspect in Arizmendi's disappearance in April of 2004. And police, they seized his van in Dare County, North Carolina, and discovered that several of the seat cushions had been taken out. Right. And blood from two people was found underneath some carpet. Right. So he had taken the seat cushions out trying to hide his tracks, but mm-hmm. he didn't pull the carpet out. So what had happened is they had bled out in the in the van, and it got underneath the carpet. Yep. And DNA was taken from Arizmendi's relatives, and it was determined that one of the blood samples was a 99% certain to have come from Arizmendi. Right. And they also found six videotapes of how having some bizarre sex with women, but the videos were shot in a way where you couldn't see their faces. Right. And it wasn't clearly visible. Hmm, I'm intrigued. Yeah. What is bizarre sex with women? What, yeah, are, they, what are they considered? What is bizarre sex? I don't know. Don't Google it, I'm sure. No. <laughs> I got enough in my Google search history to probably convict me of something right now. Just doing these podcasts. Right. But because... um. Arizmendi's body had not been found at that time. Hal was charged with first-degree manslaughter, and he was also later charged with witness tampering after threatening another inmate. Yeah. Now, in uh, January of 2007, shortly after the trial began, Hal entered an Alfred plea. Yep. To first-degree manslaughter, meaning that he did not admit to the crime, but conceded that the prosecution had enough evidence to get a conviction correct yep and at sentencing hal continued to insist that he did not kill Arizmendi, and he argued that the bloodstains was from a physical fight that Arizmendi had in the van with her boyfriend and he also tried to get his alpha plea thrown out yeah claiming that he only entered the plea because the public defender pressured him right but hal was sentenced to 15 years in prison for her death. Right. Even though they didn't have a body. So they couldn't prove it, but they uh, he just said, went ahead and said, okay, you got enough. It looks like you got enough to, to get me, but I'm not saying I did it, but you got it, you know. It looks like I did it. Yeah. Yeah. That's rough. Fair to taking, give me the 15 years. Yeah. All right, Dale. Just weeks later, a hunter found human bones behind the West Farm shopping mall in West Hartford, Connecticut. Yes. And they were trying to find out who these bodies belong to yeah yeah they said that uh, west farms is kind of you know kind of a uppity section of connecticut you know mm-hmm. you'd always see high-end cars and stuff in the shopping center and stuff but and then behind it i think there was like a, a ravine and then uh some woods yeah and that's kind of where they found these bodies but, but this wooded area is marshy and pretty un- inaccessible by a vehicle which was kind of shopping to me or shocking i don't know how big this wooded area was but if this was a you know, a pretty high-end place. What was this guy hunting for? That's, that's yeah. <laughs> Behind the shopping center. I right. Know. 
that was one and then i haven't seen it anywhere it just says a hunter found it doesn't say what he was hunting mm-hmm. all right dale they found some bodies out there in that wooded area behind this shopping plaza and one of them was diane cusack mm-hmm. she was a 55 year old new britain resident and she disappeared in mid 2003 and police had last had contact with her on july 9th uh, during a landlord tenant dispute and her remains were found behind the New Britain shopping plaza in 2007. And she was identified in 2011. But Cusack, who had a substance abuse problem, had been in out of contact with her family for years and had never been reported missing. Right. So she was just estranged from everybody. Yep, strung out. Mm-hmm. Most, of these, most of these are on heroin. Yep. Now, the next body they found was Joy Valine martinez she went by joy she was 23 years old and she went missing on october the 10th 2003 but she was not reported missing until march 29th of 2004 and suspicion arose when she did not show up for her birthday party and she was spotted in her hometown of east hartford where she lived with her mother and in high school she had been a track star and at the time of her disappearance she was unemployed and her remains were some of the first to be removed from the shopping plaza area in 2007, and she was identified in 2013. So they had these remains for years. Before they even knew who it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty sad, man. Going mm-hmm. from big track star to this uh, damn heroin will get you, man. Yep. PSA, folks. Stay, yep. stay away from the heroin. And the next body they found, her name was Mary Jane Menard. She was a 40-year-old substance abuse counselor from Waterbury, Connecticut. And she went missing from New Britain in October 2003, and her remains were found in the shopping plaza in 2007. But see, what happened was she'd had some surgery, and she'd gotten addicted to pain pills. Mm -hmm. And when she was trying to get off of them, she was in counseling to get off of these pills, and one of the... Uh, people in there with her got her addicted to heroin well you know that happens a lot especially with opiates you know people get addicted to pain pills and then they start going looking for pain pills and then they start buying from pain pills from anywhere they can find them and then when they can't find them people lead them to heroin because you you know they can get that cheaper and it's basically the same thing Mm -hmm. but it's a lot more deadly a lot more dangerous yeah but Sadly, sadly, that's that's the way it goes. People start off with pain pills, and then it just keeps escalating until you get there. You can't find them no more, or nobody will give them to you, or you can't buy them from anybody else. Then people send you that way. Mm-hmm. Sad. More remains were discovered on April of 28, 2015. How, how many years later was this? This was a couple years later. Yeah, I know several. I mean, I know... After some of them were identified. Yes, I know all these bodies were there at the time. They just didn't find them at the time, mm-hmm. which is wild. Because they were buried spread out. Yeah. Yeah, so basically they were buried like in a baseball diamond. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're all pretty shallow. Like, what, two foot, I think you said? Yeah. Because of the water table. Yeah, the water table. Yeah. And the next one that was found, is this was the Nilsa Arismendi. Right. Uh, female that we talked about earlier. This was his first victim. Yeah. So now, when they found the body, now they kind of started thinking here. Just fixing to start linking some stuff together. Yeah. And then his next victim, her name was Marilyn Gonzalez. And she was a 26-year-old woman. 
and the mother of two children. She went missing in 2003 after she left her home in Waterbury. Right. And her body was found behind the West Farm Shopping Mall in Farmington, Connecticut, on April of 28, 2015. The next was a female named Melanie Ruth Camelini. And she was a 29-year-old mother of two from Seymour, Connecticut. And she went missing on January the 1st, 2003. And she had been recently living in Waterbury and was last seen in that area with two men. And she was known to have had a substance abuse problem who would regularly disappear for long periods of time. Right. And her body was discovered behind the New Britain Shopping Center. Same place. Yep. And identified in 2015. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, and all these went missing in, I think, in about a nine-month period, actually, mm-hmm. get her back to it. All right, now, his next victim was Danny Lee Whisnett, who went by Janice Roberts, who was 44 years old. And Janice was last seen on June the 25th, 2003. Now, get this. Hal believed that Janice to be a female. Right. And picked her up from the streets for sex. Mm-hmm. Now, when he figured out that Janice was transgender... He flipped out. Yeah, he flipped out big time. What it was, he grabbed her by the hair and the wig come off. Yeah, he was doing his thing and he grabbed her. Yeah, and the wig, when the wig came off, he just flipped out. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. Yeah. I'm sure he was in shock. But he killed Janice out of rage. Yeah. And even at Hal's sentencing, Janice's sister, April Rich, read a statement Your size and force ripped away our lives that did not belong to you i hope the words that you hear today resonate in your soul for the rest of your life you may be able to protect yourself physically in prison but there is no weapon that will protect you from your own thoughts mm, dang, that's heavy that's deep words man yeah and uh janice was the only one that was not a drug user yeah yeah the rest of them were she she was just sex for money yeah yeah but at, at that point he was just i guess if if she'd have been a hadn't been a transgender he would have killed her yeah probably yeah now i know that you know there's also saying you know there were lots of times that he didn't kill them Mm -hmm. and most of the time you know it said that uh the only time he you know well not the only time but like because he had a grass cutting service and if he had a uh, a job the next morning then he wouldn't go out or he wouldn't he wouldn't kill him but if he did or if he if he didn't have a uh, job the next morning he knew he could take as long as he wanted to mm-hmm. and a lot of these people when he uh took them and raped them he would keep them over 12 hours torturing and raping over and over in the back of his van yes and that's that's what it was it was his murder mobile even taking naps in between rape sessions while they were tied up yeah bleeding and beat up yeah he would just take a nap and then and they wake up start back over one of the females he hit her in the head with a hammer mm-hmm. thinking it would kill her and it didn't and she said i've got kids and that was when he just choked her just begging her to die oh gosh yeah but this was all in the parking lot right there in that shopping center right right next to mcdonald's and he would take them to mcdonald's and get them something to eat and some of them that would be their last meal oh gosh yeah and he told them if they made any noise, he would kill them. Right. He would kill them anyway. Yeah. Well, most of them. Yeah, yeah he did. But he knew, you know, when the first time he ever did it, you know, he, when he, he always fantasized about raping uh, prostitutes and said the first time he did it, he knew he was going to have to kill them just to, to keep it quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
But the victims were identified as uh, seven women, one of whom was gen- transgender. Right. And their bodies were discovered behind the shopping plaza there in Hartford in New Britain. Right. Beginning in 2007. Yeah, you know, and, and how later told a cellmate that there was a monster inside of him and, and described himself as, quote, a sick ripper. You know, which led to Howell to being referred to as the sick river by the media. He also told him that, you know, he would keep some of the, he kept one of the women's bodies in his van for two weeks because it was too cold outside to bury her. The ground was froze. Yeah. And uh, he attempted to bury her and he couldn't get in there so he couldn't figure out what to do. So he rolled her up in a tarp and just kept her in the van and slept, her, slept beside her. So he, he slept next to her and called her, called, uh, called her his baby. Wow. And then uh, he remembered that uh, seeing, um, that uh ravine behind the shopping center um his girlfriend at, at the time worked in a um a hair salon in that shopping center and he would take her lunch so they would go out back and eat and that's where he'd seen the ravine in in the big lot or whatever mm-hmm. and uh so he remembered that because he said you know a lot of people dump the uh, limbs and grass clippings and some trash and stuff would be in there and he remembered seeing a barrel in there so he went back and took her and put her in a barrel and uh he went back to wherever I think he went down to Virginia for a while, and then he came back and then actually took her later and then uh, buried her later. But he had actually had cut off her fingertips and then dismounted her bottom jaw, trying to t- get get her teeth out of her head so they couldn't identify the body. Mm-hmm. This was Melanie Camelini. So that's pretty rough. Yeah. And then later, what he would do is discover, drive over there, and dump the bodies in that ravine. And then come back the next day or so and park his van at the McDonald's next to it and then walk over there and then go bury him. That's crazy. So he wouldn't spend so much time at once to not get caught. Yeah. It's amazing, these little shopping centers, man. Ain't no telling what's behind some of these That's right. These places. You know, and, and even I uh, heard an interview with the, the lady that wrote the book, um, His Garden. that uh, Ann K. Howard. Yeah, said that, uh, you know, if you were at the drive-through at the window, you could actually, like, turn your head to the right, and his van would be parked over sometimes in the corner. And there was times that he was doing, he was killing and raping in the middle of the day. So while people was going through the drive-through over in the van, which some of the van, the windows were busted out, and they were plywooded over, so you couldn't see in it anyway. But So you'd be in there doing this while people was just coming through the drive-through. And we're going to post pictures of this van. <laughs> yeah, it's creepy as hell. Yeah, it is. I've seen a lot of, as my kids call them, Melister Man vans. <laughs> I've seen a lot of them, but this one probably takes the cake. Sketchy vans. Yeah. But by the time Howell turned into a serial killer, he was semi-homeless. Um, oh, hell, he's been homeless the whole time, man. Just yeah. About. I mean, listen, right up well, to they the, took his van, I guess now he is. Yeah, right up to the day he was arrested. Yeah. And Howell, like we said, he eventually referred to his dumping ground as his garden. Yeah. And extensive interviews with this attorney, Ann K. Howard. She was the one that published this book like we talked about. She published it in 2018. This little area that he buried the bodies was tucked far enough away from the asphalt that it could not be reached by a vehicle. Hmm. But all the murders occurred in 2003. Yeah. During a nine-month period, like we said. It was the 2003 murder of uh, Nilsa Arizmendi that, that sent him to jail the first time. We know if... If he hadn't killed her or if the the boyfriend hadn't went and said, you know, I know where she was, L.A. Montanero got him. Ace Sanchez, yeah. Yeah. He put him on the trail. Yeah, he sure did. But, you know, how he was described as 
a pretty nice guy everybody he you know did work for landscaping he was very friendly he called you know was very polite yes sir no sir yes ma'am no ma'am even the kids in the town loved him that he was funny loved to hang out with him mm-hmm. just a very nice guy but he had like another side of him that loved to kill and loved sex and prostitutes crazy yeah and this uh lady Ann Howard that wrote the book on him. She interviewed him several times and even developed a close friendship with him and said that if if he was out today, she wouldn't have a problem living across the street from him. She would, you know, be his neighbor. I don't know about that. Yeah. Said uh he he's he feels bad for the families that he messed up. But he is a killer. I mean, he is serving life in prison. Yeah, he's got like 360 years to, to do. So maybe she could say that and not having to worry about it because I don't know if that, I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, I mean, it's just there ain't no way I'd do it. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, another thing is like, even when he was with uh, with them at the motel and doing the crack, he didn't even really do the crack. He didn't. He said it made him sick. Like, I think right after his mom passed away, he went and bought like. Three hundred dollars worth of crack, and him and a prostitute went to a hotel for three days, and said he tried it like twice and made him sick both times. Mm-hmm. So he, she was just there doing her, and she did all the crack, I guess. But he said he loved smoking pot. Oh yeah, pot and alcohol—that was his gimmick. Yeah, it relaxed him and made him feel good. Yep. Now, when he was in jail in North Carolina, Dare County, you know, he was caught for misdemeanor of driving without a license. That's when. Uh, he was starting to be connected with these other murders in Connecticut. Now, when they came and got him from Connecticut, they extradited him back to Connecticut. And he was wondering why they would come so far just on a misdemeanor charge driving without a license. Right. And that's when uh, they showed him a picture of one of his victims. And that's when he got quiet. Yeah, they started asking a few questions, and then he figured out he better just keep his damn mouth shut. Yeah, I need a lawyer. Yeah. But he was sentenced to 360 years in prison. Yep. Six consecutive life sentences. Mm-hmm. On November 17, 2007, Howell was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences after pleading guilty to the murders of Cusack, Martinez, Menard, Gonzalez, Camellini, and Wisnet. He cried to apologize to the families and victims during the sentence and called his actions monstrous, cowardly, and selfish. Mm-hmm. He told the court that he deserved a death penalty which was abolished in 2015 in Connecticut. So that's why he got them 360-something years. Yes. So he won't have to worry about him getting out. But he is currently serving his life sentence in the Cheshire Correctional Center Mm -hmm. in Connecticut. Yep. So he is never seeing the light of day. No. And it's reported, you know, he, he has no friends, nobody write him except for this attorney that wrote the autobiography on him or the biography on him yeah and she says she don't see him talk to him too much anymore she's trying to separate i think from him now yeah at the time she was going to see him once a month when she was doing her book yeah for like two or three years yeah yeah but now and then she cut it back to a couple times a year yeah and said you know once once he uh he uh, come out and confessed and then told her he felt like he needed to tell her all the details. So all the stuff she got in her head was starting to bother her. So she, after writing the book, everything, she's trying to start to separate a little bit. And then slowly, the letter slowed down. And then uh, she quit taking his phone calls. Like, she just had to decompress, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can't imagine. 
Yeah. But she uh, she friended him, and she said that she let him read the manuscript of her book after she completed it, and he, he got pretty mad about it, saying that she portrayed him as a monster and not like, you know, somebody with feelings and emotions. There's a, pretty much as a killer. Well, she probably went in trying to be extra friendly to get him to say what she needed for the book. And so he kind of slowly over the years let down his guard and thought maybe they was really friend friends. Mm-hmm. And then when his book come out, he thought she might paint him in a better light instead of what he really was. And that's probably ticked him off. Well, she told him at the very beginning that uh, he is a project. Oh, yeah. And that she was going to write a book about him. Right. So she didn't hide anything. Yeah, well, I ain't saying she lied to him. I'm just saying what he thought. Yeah. You know, he probably thought it was going to be, since we're friends, you know, she's not going to really make you sound out to be this monster that he really is. Mm-hmm. So now if you want to read this book, it's called His Garden, Conversations with a Serial Killer. And it is an autobiographical and biographical true crime novel by Ann K. Howard. Right. And she is a practicing attorney. Yep. That is William Devin Howell. William Devin Howell. Yeah. The, the third. No, he's not third from Gilligan's Island. <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah. He's <laughs> serving 360 years. Yeah. William Devin Howell, 360. The third. The third. <laughs> All right, Dale, we are going to get out of here. All right, man, let's roll. We want everyone to be safe, be careful, and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is the Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.